Welcome to the first episode of the American Dynasties podcast. I am your host, Jocelyn, and I'm super excited you're here. When I got the idea for this podcast, I had no idea how much research I would end up compiling for the upcoming episodes, but I just kept digging up more. The very first thing I did when coming up with the concept for the American Dynasties podcast, I made a list of what I considered to be American Dynasties, and the very first family on that list was the Vanderbilt family. I had originally planned to do three episodes to briefly cover the entire family starting in the early 1800s, but that quickly went out the window with all of the research. Before we get into what the Vanderbilt Dynasty is all about, let's explore what it specifically means to be an American Dynasty. A dynasty is a line of hereditary rulers of a country. A dynasty could also be described as a succession of people from the same family who play a prominent role in business, politics, or another field. The Vanderbilt's American dynasty begins with Cornelius Vanderbilt, whose legacy still lives on today, but not how you may think. In this episode, I'm going to mainly focus on the business side of the Vanderbilt's, and in a future episode, I will focus on family. Cornelius Vanderbilt was born in Port Richmond, Staten Island, New York, on May 27, 1794. This is also where he and his nine siblings were raised. His father was a poor farmer and boatman, and his mother taught him hard work. Cornelius quit school at 11 years old to work on the waterfront with his father. Eventually, he borrowed $100 from his parents in 1810 to purchase his own boat to carry passengers and cargo between New York City and Staten Island. Cornelius made over $1,000 in his first year in business. The War of 1812 gave Vanderbilt a unique opportunity, and he was able to expand his business into a small fleet. When Vanderbilt was 18, he was contracted with the U.S. government, supplying outposts around New York City. By the end of the War of 1812, Cornelius continued to expand his business, but sold all of his boats in 1818. The reason Cornelius sold all of his boats was because they were sailing vessels and knew that steam-powered vessels would quickly take over the shipping industry. This was new technology at the time, and Vanderbilt wanted to take advantage of it. So he began to work for a man named Thomas Gibbons, who was a steamboat ferry operator. Cornelius promised to make a few changes to the business to increase its profits, and in return, he got an annual salary of $1,000. Changes were made to the business, including making the ships more comfortable for passengers and lowering shipping rates. This was a business model that Vanderbilt used with his future businesses. All was well for Cornelius and Thomas until they got involved in a huge lawsuit that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. A man by the name of John Fitch had been granted a monopoly by the New York legislature for his version of the steamboat. Back in the day, monopolies would be granted in special circumstances to promote business to help stimulate the economy. When Fitch died, Robert Livingston gained the rights to the monopoly in New York. Thomas Gibbons decided to take Livingston to court over the situation, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. This landmark case was known as Gibbons v. Ogden. In case you're wondering who this Ogden person is, Aaron Ogden was the former governor of New Jersey and used to have a working partnership with Gibbons until it went bad and they became competitors and enemies. The U.S. Supreme Court made the ruling to eliminate all state monopolies in 1824. This case would come back into play when regulatory laws were created in the early 20th century for American corporations. 
Cornelius Vanderbilt worked for Thomas Gibbons for 10 years and thrived. But in 1829, Cornelius decided to leave and start his own business running steamboats. He began by offering service between Peekskill, New York, and New York City by using the Hudson River. Vanderbilt was very successful with this business, but his success also caused him to have another battle in business. This time, it was with Daniel Drew, who also owned steamboats and operated a transportation company. Vanderbilt used the tactics he was known for by charging cheaper rates to take down his competitors. Cornelius continued to expand his business in the East Coast and eventually set his eyes on expansion in the West because of the California Gold Rush that began in 1848. During the California Gold Rush, Cornelius transported passengers from New York to San Francisco. What made his transport more appealing than others was that his ships went through Nicaragua, which was faster than the already established transport through Panama. Vanderbilt began working with wealthy British bankers to obtain the necessary finances to construct a canal in Panama. They decided not to work on the project with Cornelius, but the project did get financing by a French consortium and construction began in 1880. This came to be known as the Panama Canal. Cornelius Garrison and Charles Morgan were two of the executives that Vanderbilt had put in charge to help run his company. They eventually betrayed Vanderbilt through stock manipulation that eventually caused them to have control over the company. Knowing what fighting the two executives in court would do to the business he built and his reputation, Vanderbilt made the decision to start a rival company. Vanderbilt was able to put Cornelius Garrison and Charles Morgan out of business in just two years. Later in the 1850s, Vanderbilt started getting into the railroad business, which is what he's most famous for. He purchased enough stock in the New York and Harlem railroads that he ended up owning the line by 1863. In 1867, Vanderbilt purchased the New York Central Railroad and later bought the failing Hudson River Railroad. He attempted to purchase the Erie Railroad line. This caused him to have a run-in with Daniel Drew, who was the treasurer for the Erie Railroad line. Their very public rivalry was known as the Erie Railroad War. The Commodore was involved in the infamous War of 1868, putting himself up against two Wall Street traders that were well known for their unethical methods. These two men were Jim Fisk and Jay Good. During this time, Wall Street was not well regulated like it is today, and I'll share an example in a minute. The Erie Railroad was controlled by Daniel Drew. He had a shady reputation as a businessman and played a large part in some shady happenings on Wall Street during the 1850s and 1860s. Cornelius Vanderbilt and Daniel Drew had a crazy relationship, sometimes being enemies and sometimes being allies. In the later part of 1867, the two worked together so the Commodore could buy up enough shares of the Erie Railroad so Vanderbilt could gain control of the line. Of course, he ran into a huge problem as Fisk and Good did their shady thing and issued watered-down shares of the Erie Railroad. Vanderbilt kept buying more and more shares and eventually the war between him, Fisk, and Good came to an end, but not how you'd expect. Jim Fisk and Jay Good gained control of the railroad and Daniel Drew paid Cornelius back for the watered-down stocks he bought. While this was a huge loss for Vanderbilt, he moved on to be the driving force to build Grand Central Depot in Manhattan, opening in 1871. 
The original building was eventually torn down and replaced by what is now Grand Central Terminal, which opened in 1913. In January of 1877, Cornelius Vanderbilt died. His son, William Henry Vanderbilt, inherited the majority of the family's fortune. He inherited the 87% stake in New York Central and expanded the business, reportedly doubling the family's fortune to over $200 million. William received such a large inheritance because he had been the only son to be so active in the family business. Money did cause William Henry Vanderbilt some anxiety, which is completely different from the Commodore's view of money. By 1879, William Henry Vanderbilt began selling off his shares of the company his father began, so he would no longer be the sole owner, making him around $35 million. He then began buying government bonds as a means of investment. When William Henry Vanderbilt died, he split his fortune between his two oldest sons instead of leaving it to the most business-savvy son, as his father did for William Henry. I'm not going to get into too much more about the family and what they did with the family fortune, because that will be in another episode. I will say this, though. By 1973, none of the 120 members of the Vanderbilt family that attended the family reunion that year were millionaires. So, if you want to know what happened to all those millions, you'll have to come back next week. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the American Dynasties podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a positive review. If you love this episode and want more, subscribe to the weekly email list where I share some fun facts not mentioned in the episode. I also share recommendations for books and documentaries. New podcast episodes are released on Tuesdays and the companion email is sent out on Thursdays. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at American Dynasties Pod. Thanks again for tuning in and don't forget to come back next week for another episode.